0: This podcast is brought to you by EnergyX. Are you tired of paying huge rates to the big cloud providers? Are you worried about being booted off a cloud platform if your company doesn't meet their ever-shifting standards? Ready to step up your data security and disaster recovery game? Well, ladies and gentlemen, your new cloud is ready. Introducing xCloud, the scalable, resilient computing cloud that is also actually affordable. It's high-performance compute for half the cost. HPC for HTC. XCloud from Red Team is opening a beta program for new cloud computing customers and that means you, my friend. This cloud is powered by the XMDC Immersion Cooled Modular Data Center from EnergyX. I've seen this data center in operation and it is a total game changer. So if you want more information about the beta launch, go to the URL in the description. Type in promo code beta, B-E-T-A, for 50% off of your first instance. And so the URL is going to be digitalwallcutters.com forward slash energy This is the oil and gas startups podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is up Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the oil and gas service podcast. It is Friday. I'm going to see Sam Hunt tonight and I'm excited. But before we get there, I'm here with my buddy Tommy Ogden with Activera Consulting. here from Houston, Texas. What's up, man?
1: Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Doing good, man.
0: I'm so glad. I'm so glad to have you here. We've had a good chat uh, leading up to this point. And so it's good to, good to have you here, ready to tell your story. Obviously, you guys are in the consulting space. What do you guys do?
1: That's right. So we are IT advisory consultants for oil and gas. And when you talk about a company, in fact, when we first started the company, the first thing we did was vision, mission, core values, really try to understand those. So I think it's a good spot to start, right? So uh, we just launched in April of this year and we do have a longer pedigree, like a 20 year pedigree. And I'll get into that when we talk about the background. But um, essentially what our vision is, is to make a measurable impact on client success. How do we do that well we want to positively affect people processes and assets that are changing as a result of digital transformation or energy transition we use custom built tailored fit for purpose fit for purpose solutions to do that um, and that's really how we get to that mission of measurable success and then our core values which you know really sort of underpin everything that we do those are non-changeable i try to remember them through bach Johann Sebastian Bach, that's how Mm -hmm. I remember those. So B-A-C-H, B stands for balance. We like a work-life balance. We all have responsibilities outside of our clients. Our clients have responsibilities, you know, kids, family, whatever it might be. And so we want a nice work-life balance, which typically doesn't coincide with consulting, um, at least stereotypically. Um, So that's balance. A would be uh, adaptability, right? So we like to be agile and responsive to external market factors um we are agile we do a lot of like agile transformation or project and program management and so being able to respond to change is really important to us the c is collaborative collegial right we like working together um we're never going to come in there and be the you know the big strategy guys that say you know thou shalt do it this way this is the perfect way we like to co-create with our clients that's another c word right we like to understand the culture. Right, um, so that's that's the C, and then the last one H is is honor, and the way that we internalize that is through integrity. Right, we're we're gonna do what we say we're gonna do. Right, we're easy to work with, and um, and that's non-negotiable. So those are really the the high points I would say of our vision, our mission, and our core values. So hopefully, give you a better sense of yeah, who absolutely. we are as a company.
0: Right? Absolutely. Who, so who are the who are the kinds of um, ideal clients for you guys?
1: Yeah. So. Uh, we are in the energy space, right? So we'll do uh, integrated oil companies, majors, smaller players, but we typically focus on the office of the CIO or the office of the CTO. So it's information officer, technology officer, data officer, data and analytics officer, right? Typically, that's the the place where we play um, yeah. at that C level. And then, you know, director and below and helping move their initiatives along.
0: It's absolutely needed. Um, you know, it, when I'm not here recording podcasts, making video content and hosting ETNs, I actually do other things. Mm. And a lot of that is actually interfacing with with those offices. And, and what, you, what you find is that a lot of these groups are really resource constrained, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Despite mm-hmm. being a multi-billion dollar company, they just the, the organization is not allocated necessarily enough people to possibly tackle maybe some of the initiatives. Absolutely. Um, and so having groups that you can lean on who mm-hmm. have, you know, the experience and the pedigree that you talked about, um, I think is really important. So let's talk about your, your background. Sure. How, how do how do we get here?
1: Yeah. How do we get here? Uh, well, when I was born no, I won't start there. Um, <laughs> let's see where to start. So I, I kind of have a, an unconventional, no pun intended, unconventional background. Um, as it relates to getting into consulting. So in an undergraduate, I wasn't a mechanical engineer or, you know, petrochemical engineer, geophysicist. I was uh, a language major. So Spanish, I took okay. Portuguese, French. <laughs> that was my background. So did
0: you just study all the languages? Just- <laughs> Pretty
1: much. Well, romance languages in general, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, right? I Why mean Why did you choose that? I'm i so like sure. i've
0: never <laughs> once met somebody who was like i was a language major i was a spanish so need, major yes help me understand the psychology of this was it just like young kid
1: didn't understand like what you wanted to do in life and you're like i like languages i'm just gonna go and i mean you got to follow your passions yeah. in life right i think one of the advantages of going to like a liberal arts college is that you get exposure to lots of different components i went to vanderbilt in okay. nashville tennessee okay. so i did languages i played rugby i was in the theater i mean i would just a little bit of everything we so are doing anything, a lot of creative right? stuff but then the rugby was a little bit i know right <laughs> how many theater people are in rugby yeah and how many rugby guys go to th- yeah. yeah so i didn't know what i wanted to do i just knew you there were certain things. things i liked yeah, yeah and i was passionate about and that i was good at and so you tend to you know gravitate towards those types of things um but what are you going to do with a spanish degree right mm-hmm. i get out i'm not sure what i want to do so i get a Series 65, uh, become an investment advisor representative, selling mutual funds. I actually went to Rice Continuing Education to become a certified financial planner, CFP. And I quit after a semester because I realized this isn't really my passion. Um, But it's interesting looking back because the the whole part I like about consulting is helping people, right? Mm. Trying to understand their problems, tackling them in an innovative way. And I can see that in retrospect with like a a financial planner, right? You're trying to take an assessment of somebody's finances and then recommend a good path forward for them and their investments, right? And so I can see backwards that that, why that was attractive to me. It just, the financial aspect never really, uh, never really took hold. Um, So I ended up actually at a heating and air conditioning manufacturer for three years in their finance department. And because I think, because I had a uh, language background, I kept getting, leapfrogged by other folks who had finance backgrounds for promotions and things like my bosses mm-hmm. loved me i was doing good work whatever but it just wasn't advancing the way i wanted to so i ended up going back to business school and uh, i went to university of houston and i did a dual degree program so uh, university of houston mba and then they had a deal with another company in phoenix called the thunderbird school of global management it's an international business okay. school and so I did a year and a half full-time MBA, uh, went back to school in 2010. Um, for that first year I was full-time, I got an internship at Hewlett Packard um, during that summer, and then they invited me on full-time. So that last semester I was in Houston, I was working full-time for HP, and then going to school at night. And then I moved to Phoenix and I did a year over there. And um, I, I continued to work for HP at that time, but. I was really focused on, hey, what do I wanna do next? Why am I here? Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, there was a there was a, a deliverable or a course where the final deliverable was trying to go out and interviewing somebody in the industry that you want to be, right? Someone who has the job that you want in 10 years and really focus on that. And I found somebody who was working for uh, Boston Consulting Group at the time and, after having that discussion, I realized this is it for me, right? I found that passion in, uh, in business school. And from then on, everything I did, I got a consulting certificate. I was doing classes where, you know, companies would come into the school and pay money to get, you know, talented MBA students to work on problems. So I was doing actual consulting work there as much as I could eat it up, like just a sponge um, to try to get as much consulting experience as possible. And that's really how I found that passion. But how do I get to Activera? Well, uh, I landed a job when I graduated in Houston. I'm from Houston originally and so is my wife. And we wanted to come back here and, uh, and Anaxis Consulting was hiring. And that was a boutique management consulting firm, IT advisory in oil and gas. Sounds very similar to Activera, I'd imagine. Um, and so I got a job. I was, I think employee 30, 35. And, uh, I started working, uh, for a super major client at that time and continued to do so for the next six years, 2013 to 2018 is when, uh, we got the email (laughs) from the owners that, Hey, we've been acquired by Accenture. Mm. And so, uh, It was a bit of a surprise. Uh, I know they were sort of looking uh, looking for acquisitions. We made it to about 100 people and I'd say 20 million in revenue. And at that point, you start becoming attractive, right, to to larger tier two firms. Uh, And Accenture uh, in particular is, you know, they acquire a lot of companies and integrate them into their into their company. Um, So we were acquired. And then the last four years I've been with Accenture. Um, but sort of realized, and this is a bit of a personal choice, I would say for, for a consultant, right? Do you like those bigger tier two firms, right? Um, do you like the tier ones, the McKinsey's and the BCG's and the Bain's? Do you like a boutique firm, right? Or do you like to go off and be an independent consultant and try to find your own work? So I did a little bit of soul searching last year and, and realized, you know, I really, though I'm having a good time at Accenture, a lot of smart people, a lot of good work that boutique style really matches better with my personality and how I like to work. Why is that? Work. I don't really like the the political nature of hierarchy. Okay. Um, I like a flat hierarchy. Um, I mean, we were just out here in the lobby, right? And you guys got beanbags out here. People are lounging, but they're working hard, right? That kind of atmosphere, it's hard to create something like that in a public company that's so mm-hmm. structured. Um, when going back to the C in Bach, right? That collaborative, collegial sort of approach, really, it just, I don't know, it it meets my needs as it relates to that work-life balance. And so um, I just felt like I could get that more at a boutique firm. And looking back on my Anaxis days, right, that uh that really stuck with me. And so April of this year, uh, we took a bunch of folks that were old Anaxis that we had actually you know, work together for years and set up this company and we're doing it again, this 2.0 version. So like, like I was saying in the intro, um, though we are brand new as of April, this is really a continuation of that 20 year old company. Um, And, you know, we do a lot of similar things, just a bit more focused in, in some of the newer trends in energy, like I said, digital transformation, energy transition.
0: I think it's cool that you've, you, you were able to do that soul searching and have that self awareness to know what is a fit for you and like what energizes you. Um, obviously you had the experience there at a I'm the same way. I had a friend pose a question to me the other day. He said, what if, what if he is also at a, not not a consulting group, but a big, big, big company. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what if they gave you this position and you're making a million dollars a year? Uh, would you take it or would you continue to do something else on your own? Sure. Even if you're making significantly less. And I was like, dude, I'm just not I'm not built for that. <laughs> you can sit there and you can, you know, you can you can, you know, kind of fall in line and, and make really, really good money. Um, but I know that for me, I, I look back to some of the the lowest points in my life, right. Where I left my first startup, had a falling out with my business partner, and didn't really know what I was gonna do next. I was kind of working on my next startup, had no money. Um, wanted to continue to to stay in this space. And so what did I do in the meantime? I started a pressure washing business. Okay. And I'm like literally out there doing like, you know, blue collar work out in the sun here in Houston. And I look back so fondly on that. I know like probably, I'm probably romanticizing it a little bit, but like, yeah, <laughs> I would enjoy doing that. I enjoy doing that and just being the master of my own destiny because mm-hmm. I know like through and through entrepreneurship for me is like oxygen. Like I don't have another choice. Yeah. I can't go and just be a a cognitive machine Mm -hmm. somewhere. Yeah.
1: You know, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's just that's just I just know that about myself. Well, you you found it out earlier than I did. Yeah. (laughs) It's taken me a while to, you know, figure out, hey, what are my passions and what do I want to do with my life? And but it's good. It's a good spot. And it it does have more of a roller coaster effect, right? Those those ups and downs are minimized when you're in, you know, a good paying job and it's steady and you're doing the nine to five and it's, you know, there's not a lot of lows, there's not a lot of highs, but you're not getting the associated adrenaline rush, right? With something really good, right? There's this, this um, minimization of your experience to a certain degree. And I think that kind of striking it out on your own and um, and having that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, we're, we're chasing... Uh, our own destiny like you were saying Mm. and those highs can be super high and a lot of fun the lows can also be (laughs) it's not for anybody (laughs) I
0: do not recommend anybody like be an entrepreneur and that's like that's a 180 (laughs) from like what I used to do it was like oh like you know everybody should do it and anybody can do it and you just need to have heart and determination and all that kind of stuff and now somebody's like i want to be an entrepreneur I'll actually put them through the ringer a little bit I'm like are you sure Mm. Are you sure you want to do this? Mm -hmm. Are you, like, how passionate are you about this thing that you are pursuing? Because if you don't have a lot of conviction, uh, as soon as the first major uphill battle happens, like, you're going to, like, just throw in the towel and and go back to something else. And so you've got to be built for it. And if I'm able to dissuade you from doing it when just, like, a little bit of a heart-to-heart conversation, then you weren't cut out for it in the first place. Yeah, right. Yeah, You
1: You should be fighting for it. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So walk me through a little bit of... Like, where do you feel like, I mean, this is kind of just like generally speaking, but like, where do you feel like consulting firms really offer the most value, right? To kind of play a little bit of devil's advocate, right? Especially some of the large larger organizations who have potentially, you know, a lot of resources, a lot of people, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't something that was old, like very clear to me, um, say, like 10 years ago. I, I, did, I couldn't really wrap my head around exactly where they played. Now, having been exposed to a lot of different firms and, and and just obviously through this. Um, I think I have my own kind of opinions as to 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 where they can play and a lot of value that can be created there. But mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious through through your experience. Sure. What what is the value that these firms play?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think they're sometimes it's like lawyers. There's always so many yeah. lawyer jokes, right? Consultants kind of get a bad rap uh, to a certain degree. In fact, uh, as you were saying that, I remember my grandfather uh, used to say, "You know, what is a consultant? He's somebody who will walk in." take your watch off your wrist and tell you what time it is right <laughs> and that's that's how he viewed consultants never used them right yeah. ever and I think I think it has evolved right and people's understanding and where that value can come from has evolved And I would say there's there's different types of consulting firms and there's room for all of them right I mean you've got that uh, heavy deep strategy you know research based and here's the cutting edge framework or methodology. Here, we've done a survey of these hundred companies and here's the digital disruptors who are doing it the right way. And, you know, you should do this. You should follow these things. And that works. I mean, people need that type of insight and they need somebody to go and gather that industry perspective and and sort of parrot it back to them to a certain degree. I think there's some value there. But the challenge comes when you try to take this perfect strategy and implement it in an imperfect company right? And imperfect, I mean, it has its own cultural idiosyncrasies, right? Or it has a history of doing things a specific way. Um, or it has a kind of personality of its people and how people interact. Are they more command and control? Or are they more uh, socialization and consensus driven, right? You have to take that into consideration when you're getting and trying to implement these big strategies. And so that's another place where different kinds of consulting firms can add value is in the execution piece, right? So you've got the strategy folks, they try to implement it, there's some challenges. How do you go about optimizing, identifying what are those challenges and then mm-hmm. optimizing them within this newfound transformation that's just happened within the organization? And so I think those are really the two main places that that consulting can play is more of the strategic and then some of the execution. And then, you know, after that, you can certainly get into like, um, business process outsourcing or uh you know trying to save costs i mean there's tons of ways that consultants get involved there yeah um but it's really the the ability to to ramp up and down um to focus on a specific problem where you may have certain constraints um that that you can really use services like that
0: i think there's a little bit of a stigma sometimes um not with the boutique firms but with the bigger firms mm-hmm. um you know they come in and sell you digital transformation and then you get locked into uh the implementation of a um, unnamed erp system and then that takes two years that's never actually finished and then right. you're required to like hire a bunch of people and so like that's been my experience talking with people kind of in the spaces they're just like oh man like we're just gonna get straddled with all this like stuff that we don't actually need and so um yeah it seems like there's certain people who've kind of like ruined that for for other people, but I know that's not the reality of like all
1: consulting (laughs) firms. Right. No. And, and that's another thing when you asked about what sort of attracted you to more of the boutique style, um, in all consulting firms, I would say there's a general path, right? And it's going to be different for every firm. There's like an analyst, consultant, senior consultant, manager, senior manager, director, partner, the further you get up that chain, the more expectation there is for business development and sales and bigger and bigger programs, ERP implementations and that hundred million dollar thing, right, that somebody's Mm -hmm. gonna buy, that doesn't sit well with me, uh, just personally. And that's more about finding your own passions and like what you're good at and what you like to do. I never wanna just be purely business development and sales, right? I got into consulting because I like rolling up my sleeves and helping people and solving problems. So I never want to be 100% that. You got to do it, right? I mean, everybody has to. But um, once, once you see in those tier two firms, right, is you've got these RFPs, these requests for proposals, right, for these big ERP implementations. And, you know, at those higher levels, you're really pushed to do more of that, right, and sell those giant pods of people with, you know, some onshore and some offshore folks and, you know, sell the big platforms. And to me, that's, an, that's a layer abstracted away from actually helping an individual or helping a team, right? And being really effective that way. So it, it really comes down to what are you passionate about? What do you want to do? There's value for an ERP implementation for sure, but you know, are you okay selling that kind of thing versus actually getting involved? So I hear what you're saying, and there are a lot of services that come with, with that big thing. There's value to be had as well, but that's another thing that you can lean boot- on boutique firms for is what we call project assurance, right? So you you buy this big digital transformation thing, this big ERP implementation, let's say, uh, are, are their resources being leveraged correctly? Mm. Are they full utilization, right? Is the project going in the right direction? Is it hitting its milestones? Are they being effective, right? Project assurance is something where you could bring a third party unbiased and just assess. Yeah. Right. So I
0: think that could be helpful. So a lot of firms do a billion different things, right? So mm. what kind of projects is it that like that you guys work on?
1: Yeah. Yeah, good question. So we really bucket our work in 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 four themes, let's say strategy, execution, change, and data and analytics. Those are the four that you'll see if you go to our website. What does that actually mean? Let let me give you an example uh, Mm -hmm. from uh, sort of an end-to-end work that we've done in mergers and acquisitions, okay? So we can do, from a strategy perspective, uh, some work with the client on due diligence on who should we go out and purchase given the state of the industry, right, and what we're looking to accomplish. Um, That would be some strategic work we could do. After the purchase, right, you've got all of this IT integration that needs to happen. You're trying to slam two companies together uh, there's some strategy around how do you go about doing that effectively? What is the governance model? What is the teaming model? How do you put the right people in place? Pre day one, right? What does that look like? What's the plan? Strategy stuff. Execution would be, hey, let's do the actual project and program management of this. Uh, we do a lot of agility as well. Um, so working in Kanban or Scrum or even scaled agile frameworks. If it's a really big program or portfolio. Um, so we're that's I would say is our bread and butter. In fact, Anaxis's old uh, motto, let's say is where strategy meets execution. And that's really I would say where we play the best. You know, you've got those Bain's and the BCGs and the big guys coming in with these strategies once they get implemented and executed and we start seeing those challenges, that's kind of the intersection where where we play the best. But so doing that that project work Change is all around uh, behavioral change management, um, which you may be familiar with, right? It's, you, you're trying to implement this big thing, you're affecting a lot of different people and you're potentially writing over their processes, right? So how do you go about lessening or flattening that adoption curve, right? So that that things happen more smoothly. There's a whole practice around change management. And so that's that's some something that we have some experience in. And then data and analytics would be, for us, is more around data strategy and governance and visualizations, right? We were just talking a second ago Mm -hmm. about Power BI and Tableau and Spotfire, and you've got this portfolio of different projects and programs happening as part of this IT integration. How do we get all the data out of those initiatives and roll it up to a view that where decisions can be made by management and leaders can see progress and using data visualization for that? Um so when we say data analytics, we don't we don't have data scientists and machine learning engineers, right? We work with those groups, but we do have some of the the front-end visualization and and data engineering pieces.
0: So let's yeah, let's dive into that while we're on it. Um yeah, what's what is the status of of kind of just data visualization in the industry currently? As we talked about, Spotfire and Power BI, mm-hmm. every shop's got at least one of them.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> It it really depends. Like when I think of analytics, I think of it like a spectrum. Okay, mm-hmm. there's uh, there's the diagnostic stuff and the descriptive stuff, which I would say is is traditional analytics with um, with visualizations. Right, what what's happening? Right, what did happen in the past? Those types of things, and that's what dashboarding is typically used for. Then you get um, into advanced analytics, which is more like the predictive and prescriptive stuff. And that starts getting more into like data science and that kind of thing. So you know, we're really talking about the front end of the spectrum here. Um, I, I would say that everybody's got a spot. Fire was big in, in energy, right, for a long time. Um, Tableau's sort of made its way in. But a lot of folks are, are you know, putting a stake in the ground for the Microsoft 365 suite. It, right? It's easy whenever
0: everybody's already
1: on that's exactly sweet. everyone knows excel and word and powerpoint yep. hey power bi is right here let's use that um and so we're seeing more of a like a a consolidation and a removal of other um other uh, visualizations Microstrategy, i think was another one um and getting into power bi and you, you you're starting to see also a lot of integration with other um uh let's say advanced um advanced analytic pieces being brought into those visualizations so we were just talking a minute ago about you know integrating large language models and generative ai and this chat gpt like stuff into uh other interfaces and so i know microsoft is really pushing that hard with power bi and getting those types of capabilities Mm, plugged in there um but it's you know people people need to be able to visualize things effectively take take data from disparate systems of record and data sources and pull them together for a holistic view of what's happening and i think visualizations are fitting the bill for that
0: so in order to do that data quality has to be tip-top right if it's garbage in it's garbage out so that's my background you know coming in the industry is, is really data management side of of upstream in your experience how is it today how is, is it, it today? Is it, is it still a shit show or are we at least a little, <laughs> little bit better off than we were a
1: decade ago? Oh, gosh. If I'm being blunt, I think uh, it's likely the the former uh, rather than the latter. Um, but you've got different tools, mm-hmm. right? You've got different tools to be more effective. The problems that we had in the past, I would say, were were more focused around silos, Okay, we've got our data over here. We can't. We can access it. You know, maybe let's get a um, a connection, a service connection to it, and you know, get get access to it. But how do you? How are we going to pull it together with this data to get a holistic view? And the whole concept of data lakes has kind of stopped that from um, from being as much of an issue because you can take all of these disparate data sources and ingest them into a single uh, lake, right? Like an Azure data lake store, right? Mm. Or the uh, Cloudera Hadoop cluster, right, was the big thing a few years ago. Um, so big data and and those types of lakes have sort of solved that problem to a certain degree because you could put structured, unstructured, semi-structured data in there, and you can find ways to create derived data products um, from lots of different systems of record.
0: How would you describe a data lake to somebody who's like, it's a totally new concept to them?
1: Yeah. So, you know, traditional relational database management systems or RDBMSs were where you think about structured data, you think about an Excel sheet, okay? There's like rows and there's columns and it's very easy to see like where the yeah. data is, what column they're in, what is that titled, right? And you've got an entry for every row. That was kind of the traditional way of, of dealing with data. The problem is, is when you, when you come with this video, right? Or audio clips, right? Or seismic data <laughs> and you're trying to ingest that, that's not in a structured format. So how are you going to go about putting that into a centralized location and being able to add attributes or other data pieces to it to come out with something different. That's what a data lake allows you to do. You can literally put any type of data in there and it will, uh, it will hold it there for you. Now, some people have said that turns it into a data swamp, right? Because mm-hmm. then you've just got everything dumped into a big central platform. So you've gotta have governance associated with that and, you know, a good folder structure and how do you go about accessing it?
0: So is it, is it mashed into essentially a single database or is it now a collection of all of your separate databases but you can integrate in between them?
1: Yeah, it's it's more like the latter but it's not necessarily databases, right, at yeah. this point. It's not the structured data. You can literally just put any sort of file type in there, right, and that allows you to uh, manipulate it to a certain degree, right? Because you've got it, um, you've got it all in a centralized spot, but.
0: What are the most common platforms for, for that?
1: So there's like a uh, Azure data lake store okay. is the one that I'm most familiar with, yeah. right? Um, so again, the Microsoft stack, yeah. right? But everybody's got their flavor of it. I mean, the AWS's and the Google cloud platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, I would say, and probably still are, uh, you know, f- companies that are just focused on creating a data lake, but that's been incorporated into larger things now because it's such an integral part um, Isn't of,
0: it kind of how like, so Salesforce bought Tableau, but before that they bought MuleSoft. And right. was it MuleSoft essentially acting as some sort of data lake?
1: Uh, I'm not sure, honestly. I, I think, I think not so. think as familiar, perhaps. I think it was
0: aggregating all the different disparate data sources and then they bought the Tableau to add on the visualization layer for that. For front that. End.
1: Yeah, Got yeah. it, yeah. 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 And so you're seeing that consolidation, right? Yeah. Um, and putting it all together one one interesting thing i would say is that there are still challenges with that um which is the time and effort and cost therefore associated with taking all of your disparate data sources and ingesting them in in the right structure into this lake to make them usable and so there's there's something out there called like trino and presto which came about in the the facebook world right but has has since been um, either o- it's also been open source. There's an open source project you can, you can access there. But there's companies like, um, like Dremio and Starburst that will allow you to put a semantic layer on top. And literally, it goes out with SQL queries and will query all of your databases, regardless of where they are, and bring that in to a single data layer right? And then that way, you don't have to go in and ingest all that data into a lake, spending all that time and, and effort and cost to do so. Um, you can just access it sort of immediately through this this um, semantic layer. And so, you know, new problems arise as a result of new technology, and then new solutions come into play, right? And it's just such a constantly evolving, uh, evolving space, for sure.
0: Let's talk about evolving spaces. <laughs> right. Let's talk about like, AI, ML, all the most cutting edge stuff that, that we're seeing in the space. Is it, is it, are you seeing applications here uh, mm-hmm. in oil and gas or are we just not ready for the prime time?
1: Uh, well, I mean, oil and gas is always, at least again, stereotypically has been considered a laggard in, in this kind of technology adoption space. Uh, I, I think it is prime time, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we, uh, I did not mention it when I was talking earlier about um, our services, but one of the things we've done is is gone out and and added ecosystem partners where we don't really have uh, the expertise, but we think we found someone who's created a better mousetrap in a certain space. Mm-hmm. One of those uh, one of those connection points uh, you actually had on the podcast here was uh, Ahmed from Hybrid Technologies oh, yeah, yeah. doing um, digital twin for midstream storage terminals and oil refineries. So that's one space. We think they have a good technology. E2 Log is another one. They're end to end logistics platform creating sort of a control tower for optimizing that Mm. logistics pipeline. Um, And then the third one we've got currently is Domino Data Lab, and they do machine learning operations or ML Ops. They have an ML Ops platform. And we recently uh, co-wrote a blog with them where we were talking not about their product in particular, but generally for energy how is it different than other industries mm-hmm. right and what are the challenges that they have in the machine learning space um, that a an mlops platform could help address again not not talking so
0: what so what, so what does mlops platform
1: mean? Yeah. so mlops is um i mean you guys you, you've likely heard of like devops right mm-hmm. i mean that's for traditional let's say software development right you're building a product you want to combine that dev team with the operations team so that they're one entity, right? So you don't run into the same issues that you've had in the past of development, builds something and just throws it over the wall to operations and uh, and they're like, well, I can't do anything with this or I can't operationalize and scale this, right? It's a challenge. So why don't you smash those teams together and make sure that they're developing in conjunction with each other so that you can have a smooth flow of new product features and functionality um, over time. So that's really like the DevOps. So in machine learning, you've got a different type of uh, workflow, right? Than a traditional software development, but you still need that same connection point of, hey, if we build this new algorithm to solve this problem, it's gonna eventually need to get pushed out into a production environment mm-hmm. so that our end users can get value from it. Uh, we're gonna have to to monitor that model to make sure the efficacy stays high, and we might have to do some enhancements or some changes in order to retrain the data to make sure that it's still right being effective. And so there's this, this connection point between operations and, um, and machine learning development that an MLOps platform can sort of help congeal or make, yeah. make into a single,
0: what are the, what are the use cases that you're seeing that being applied to an oil and gas? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so the three sort of main problems that we, that we identified that are specific to the energy industry. Um, the first one is around uh, citizen development. Um, so oil and gas has a higher percentage of engineering talent than other industries. Right. I mean, maybe you talk about aerospace and a couple others, but oil and gas is up there, right? Energy is up there. What do those smart engineers like to do? They like to tinker, right? I mean, folks are learning Python now in school and then coming into the workforce where that was not the case ten years ago. Um, and what are they trying to do? Well, they're they're trying to make their jobs easier. They're trying to build applications to solve problems in their space. They're trying to use Python in a Jupyter notebook to build some machine learning application and then you know roll it out so they and their teams can use it. But they don't they don't have a software engineering background, right? They don't understand how to get something in a production environment. They don't understand how do I get the right type of compute? Do I need a CPUs? Do I need GPUs? Am I using Ray or Dask or what do I, I don't know, right? That's not their area of expertise, but they're not gonna stop doing that tinkering um, just because they don't realize that. The problem you get is you end up having these shadow IT organizations or these groups that are sort of running off and doing their own thing Maybe they go run a POC or a pilot with a small company that allows. Right. And then you got all these things cropping up all over your 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 um, the the business units right and functions. And that's a challenge. There's no standardization. That's where an MLOps platform can really help out. It abstracts away that uh, that complexity that those engineers don't understand. So you can you can have a compute cluster that is dedicated for that type of workload. You can standardize a process for how you get something into production you can after getting something in production genericize it and make it searchable so hey i'm i'm an engineer in the field i'm looking to build a model for a predictive maintenance for one of my compressors. Mm -hmm. Has somebody in my company done that before, Mm. right? I don't know that unless there's some platform where I can go and I can search compressors or Mm. predictive maintenance or whatever. Yeah. And it'll search and say, here's an algorithm that you could potentially use. And it probably wouldn't be 100%, right? There's different geologic structures, there's different data, right? But you'd likely be able to start not from scratch, but from 70, 80% there. So I think that citizen development space um, is is could be potentially underutilized as well as draw away from what you're trying to accomplish as an organization um, and energy it's it's more prominent I would say than than other industries just given that engineering talent
0: are you seeing anybody uh looking at really AI or particularly even like generative AI. I had a conversation with one of the large CMPs the other day about, you know, hey, what is your focus from a technology perspective? And they were like, everything AI. And I was like, cool, that's a lot. That is a lot. So man. I'm curious from your perspective, are you seeing other groups paying attention obviously we're all talking about it. We're all using it personally, whether Absolutely. it's chat GPT, Bard, Claude, uh, doesn't matter. I use it 10 times a day, minimum, Yeah. yeah. you know, in the same way <laughs> I that I would Google, yep. you know, back in the day. Um, not that I don't Google things, I still Google things, but I use <laughs> AI for more than I than I query things these sure. days. But I'm curious, are you seeing anybody actually working on anything or yeah. is it, or is it, I'll just kind of just talk and chatter.
1: No, I mean, with that talk and chatter comes leadership attention, yeah. right? And then they're asking questions, hey, what are we doing in this space and where are we and how do we effectively stand something up? Uh, this goes back to uh, one of the challenges we <laughs> actually outlined in that blog, which is, for energy companies in particular and I'm I'm talking more of like you know integrated oil companies but in general oil and gas isn't just in one part of the world right i mean you've got australia you've got latin america you've got the north sea you've got canada you've got whatever right all of these different locations and all of these different business units around the world let's say that creates a very federated environment okay what you're trying to do with generative AI and like large language models is bring in all of the data to basically create this universe that's then searchable like a a chat GPT, right? These billions of of points of data, right? It's very hard to do that when you've got all these federated business users. That's more an energy um, problem than than other industries as well. Um, So what can you do about that? How do you go about bringing that data together and vectorizing it so that it is usable in, in an application like that. Um, and that's where an MLOps platform could help you, right? Um, we just talked about data lakes, right? You don't want to go off and, and try to ingest all of that data. Sometimes you can't. There's export compliance issues of pulling data out of certain regions. It has to stay where it is. There's data sovereignty, right? How do you get around those roadmaps? Well, a good platform should be able to go into multiple clouds. It should be able to go on-prem. It should be able to go to where data rests and and doesn't actually migrate it, right, but is able to leverage it, vectorize it, and pull it together so that you can build these large language models and start getting your company um, the ability to, to do those sorts of things. Another thing I've heard in that space is, um, hey, let's use the open AI suite right when microsoft had the big purchase there um let's do that now let's prove some things out but hey if we've got that that engineering talent if we've got the technical capabilities of doing so and we know that this is a valuable use case let's go to the open source project and let's see if we can't do it ourselves Mm -hmm. right and build that out and so i think i think your companies are thinking through that right do i use that microsoft suite open AI co-pilot things that are yeah. either coming down the pike or do I open source this and try to build my own thing? You know, build versus buy is always a
0: I I just think, oh man, just seeing it's a little bit different now because um so when OpenAI released the the GPT-4 model, there was a window of about two weeks where it was absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And we've they've run into a little bit of snags just because there's too much demand, not enough supply of compute power. Mm-hmm. So they've dialed that model back significantly. And mm-hmm. I know that because I log my most successful queries for certain things that I do, or prompts for things that I do. And I've gone back since and tried to prompt the same thing. And the answers are just degraded significantly. Wow. Right? And they've also removed web browsing from there, a lot of other things, right? Okay. Despite being a pro user, all of that's gone, okay. right? The model's not as smart as it was. So now I've switched over to Claude. (laughs) I say all that to say during that window of two weeks, I prompted it with some very, very advanced prompts, Mm -hmm. right? Just building upon prompt after prompt after prompt to really give it all the information I needed to really run some more complex calculations and scenarios on certain things, right? And so seeing the power of that, I could imagine that uh, an oil and gas company could apply that to the like the financial planning and modeling okay. aspect sure. of what they do to be able to find any like risk mm-hmm. you know in the business of being able to look at price decks and saying hey if oils remain flat gas remain flat if we were to see a massive dip massive spike taking into consideration hedging sure. a billion different factors and being able to spit out something you were like that could probably do it much better than a human could yeah. right you know and so I see a lot of a lot of opportunity there and I'm I'm kind of curious who's going to be the first one to really to really crack that nut. Right.
1: Yeah, and and you're you're describing like your your prompts. I mean, there's an art to that too. Oh yeah. Right? This whole new new job function of being a prompt engineer and being able to query those models in the right way to get back what you need. Um but you're right on the on the back end like you've got to have the right data types. You've got to have it modeled the right way to, for it to be effective with your prompts. Right. And that's really the challenge any company is having now. I mean, what we're using is is the cutting edge stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There's going to be more like niche products that are going to get more into like FinOps and the finance side of house. And you're going to you know, see that in production reporting, let's say, or you're going to see it in downstream chemicals and I mean, there's, there's going to be these niche groups that pop up that are really focused on a specific problem, right? Rather than being so general. So yeah, very interesting space.
0: I'm curious to see how it all plays out, man. Same. Dude, this has been a great conversation. I've really I really enjoyed this. Get same. Enjoyed getting to know you over the past, uh, past few months. And so excited for you guys. What's the, what's the website if anybody wants to reach out?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's activeraconsulting.com. Okay. Super easy. And and you're on LinkedIn, right? We're on LinkedIn. And yeah. yeah. And it's, it is really a we, right? I haven't mentioned this, but um, I did say it was some of the Anaxis folks that came together. But we've got a, a group of six founder or seven founders, excuse me. And so, uh, you know, we're we're sort of kicking off this two version of Anaxis, and we're really having a great time. We started with the those seven, I believe we're up to thirteen now. Oh, wow. So even just since April, we've we've already doubled, and um, we've got some good client work coming down the pike, and. You know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's that entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of rounding out, you know, my career goals where I've got, you know, I've, I've seen the big consulting firm, I've seen the boutique firm, and now I'm sort of founding, a, right? So I've kind of got all these different perspectives now and it's, uh, it's super fun. Uh, we're having a good time doing it and, uh, and happy to work with, with folks that are having challenges. I mean, that's, that's what a good consultant does, right?
0: I love it, man. Yeah, reach out to these guys if you have any issues you're looking to to deal with. Tommy's just a great guy to talk with anyways. If you guys liked the episode, take two seconds. Share with your friends, all your colleagues. Send it to your mom, your grandma. We'll catch you guys on the next episode.